How do you treat COPD? What is the latest thinking in management of this complex disorder? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Stephen Brown. Dr. Brown is a board-certified pulmonologist at the Lung Center of Milwaukee. He is also on the faculty of the University of Wisconsin. Welcome, Dr. Brown. Thank you. So how do we go about treating COPD? What's the latest? I think that our approach to COPD is much more positive than it was 20, 30 years ago. I remember seeing an elderly lady who was a very heavy smoker about 15 years ago. You know, she sat down in the office and I said, Shirley, you've got emphysema. And her eyes bugged out of her head and she went, oh my God, I've got emphysema. Oh my God. And she was just beside herself because if you had a diagnosis of emphysema, it was almost like a death sentence to mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. People thought of it as something that was really just awful and, and progressive. Now, first of all, there are different stages of COPD, and just like there are different stages of hypertension and different stages of congestive heart failure. And depending on where you are will depend upon what your prognosis is and what survival might be. The American Thoracic Society and the European Respiratory Society published joint guidelines on COPD a couple of years ago. And in those guidelines, one of the things that they emphasized was that COPD was, number one, a preventable disease because it's due to smoking, which can be prevented, but it's also treatable. It's not necessarily curable, but it's a treatable condition. We recognize that treatment can help and can really improve quality of life in patients. We also recognize now that there may be inflammatory components to COPD, which when treated may also help in terms of survival and quality of life. So when I'm treating COPD, first I try to stage the patient in terms of whether their disease is mild, moderate, or severe. And in order to do that, getting history is important. And another very important tool is doing staging of the disease based upon spirometry. Now, Steve, as you know, I'm a psychiatrist, so my uh, my treatment days of COPD are long past. But at least in the old days, we always started with bronchodilators. Is that still the case? Yes. Bronchodilators are still the mainstay of therapy for the management of COPD. And for a patient who is what we refer to as mild COPD, where the FEV1 might still be around 80% of uh, predicted values, forced expiratory volume after one second done during spirometry. Just a PRN use of a bronchodilator may be useful. Uh, I'll use both brand names and, and some generic names as well so people are familiar with what to prescribe. But for someone who's got mild COPD who may tell you that they're short of breath primarily with activity and not all the time. So golf, you know, when they go out golfing or if they're walking across a long parking lot or they're going to a shopping mall, but typically other activities are okay. The PRN use of a short-acting bronchodilator is what's indicated. Short-acting bronchodilators typically are in the form of an inhaler, and those inhalers are either albuterol, which goes under the brand name of Proventil HFA or Proair HFA or Ventolin HFA. HFA stands for hydrofluoroalkane, which means the propellant that's used is no longer a Freon propellant because Freon is not environmentally friendly, and all of the inhalers are moving in that direction. Generic albuterol, which has Freon, is going to be discontinued very soon. So you can either use generic albuterol while it's still available, or you'll switch to one of these brand name albuterols. The other one that's used commonly is a combination of albuterol and ipratropium bromide, which is a short-acting anticholinergic medication. And that combination drug is called Combivent. 
Combavent HFA. Some people use Atrovent alone. Atrovent is just ipratropium bromide. But those are for PRN use, and that's what you would use to start out with. Okay, that makes sense. So how about somebody that needs something every day? If you need something every day, then you really need to use a long-acting bronchodilator. And if you're going to use long-acting bronchodilator, the newest kit on the block, which is actually a couple years old now, and it's an excellent, excellent medication, is teotropium. Teotropium, which goes by the brand name Spireva, that's made by Beringer Ingelheim, uh, is a once-a-day long-acting anticholinergic medication. And this really has 24-hour protection. Anticholinergic therapy, in my opinion, is really the way to go in COPD. We're talking about COPD in the United States. We're talking about 16 million people who are affected, of whom about 14 million people have chronic bronchitis. That's where we define that as a daily cough for at least uh, three months a year for two consecutive years. And about 2 million of those people have emphysema. Now, bronchitis and this cough is due to, in part, mucus hypersecretion. And mucus production is under the control of cholinergic pathways. So anticholinergic medication to help reduce mucus hypersecretion makes a lot of sense. Also, everybody has airways tone. That's normal for everyone. We all have cholinergic tone in our airways. And even in patients who don't respond to bronchodilators on spirometry, they still have cholinergic tone. And if we give an anticholinergic medication, you're going to relax bronchial smooth muscle and you will achieve bronchodilation. So with teotropium, I've seen 10, 20% or more improvement in pulmonary function, even in patients who on spirometry don't respond to the typical beta agonist on uh, spirometry testing. So the medication is a capsule with a dry powder inside the capsule, and Spireva is put into a device where the capsule is crunched and you inhale the contents of the capsule. Mm. Uh, it's a very well-tolerated medication. Because it's anticholinergic, it can exacerbate prostatism. So in men who have an enlarged prostate, it has even been reported to promote urinary retention, so you need to be careful there. And then among patients who have glaucoma, specifically narrow angle or closed angle glaucoma, it can make the glaucoma worse. So we try to screen for that as well. A major side effect is some dry mouth, which again, you'd expect with an anticholinergic medication. doesn't seem to cause confusion that some of the anti systemic anticholinergics uh, can cause, you know, such as uh, you know, scopolamine patches. It uh, doesn't do that. And uh, for many of my patients, it's made a huge difference for them. So that's, uh, I think, the mainstay of therapy for more moderate COPD. And that's when you're starting to get lung function that's in the neighborhood of less than 70% are predicted where people need medication. And then they can still use a medicine like albuterol on a PRN basis on top of that. Uh, those patients do well. Now, I would think, too, that Spireva would probably be a little bit more safe in patients that have anxiety, that sort of thing, where the beta agonists are problematic in those patients? Yes, the beta agonists can rev people up. They can cause tremor. They can cause sleeplessness. And uh, that can be an issue for some of the patients. So Spireva, I think, it would cause less side effects than the beta agonists. A combination that's been very helpful in my practice, though, has been a combination for, as you get even more advanced, than what I just discussed, you get a little sicker, the addition of a long-acting beta agonist to uh, Spireva works very well. Again, if you think of asthma as a disease where people are having symptoms during the day and the night, people with COPD primarily are having dyspnea with activity. So if you can give a 24-hour bronchodilator like Spireva and a 12-hour bronchodilator like either Foradil, 
which is formoterol or salmeterol, Cerevent, you can have both drugs working for you during the daytime, and then at night, the beta agonist drops out, so you don't get sleeplessness or tremor, and you still have the spiriba working for you during the daytime. Now, do you still use um, theophylline or aminophylline? Uh, theophylline is used occasionally. I probably have a handful of patients on theophylline, usually as an adjunct to more uh, advanced disease. I remember 20 years ago, I'd had a waiting room that was filled with theophylline salesmen. There were about 15 different brands of theophylline that were out there. Theodore, Unidor, Unifil, uh, Theo24, uh, Slofilin. I mean, they, slow bit, they just filled my uh, sample closet with theophylline because that was one of the only mainstays of therapy that we had. We have such better tools now with medications like Spireva or Advair, which is used for many patients uh, who have a lot of exacerbations, as well as the uh, bronchodilators and nebulizer solutions, the theophylline just has fallen out of favor. Now, what about the inhaled glucocorticoids? <laughs> Let's see if I can say it. Inhaled steroids. Thank you. What about the inhaled steroids? Inhaled steroids are particularly helpful in asthma. Now, with an incidence in the population of about 7% asthma, and maybe even a little bit more asthmatics who will develop changes that are consistent, that look like emphysema, you're going to see probably at least 10% of your population of COPDers who may actually have some responsiveness uh, to bronchodilator and maybe have asthma concurrently with their COPD. So inhaled steroids make sense in those circumstances. And we do recognize that COPD does have some inflammatory components not the same inflammation that you see in asthma, which is more of an eosinophilic inflammation. This is more of a neutrophilic inflammation in COPD. But nevertheless, there may be a role for inhaled steroids in that circumstance. A study which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine recently uh, was called the TORCH study. And the TORCH study looked specifically at uh, Advair 500-50 as a possible medication to improve mortality in COPD. And that data is very encouraging. But the dose of uh, Advair that was used is a dose that's not FDA-approved for COPD. The dose of Advair, which is FDA-approved for COPD, is 250-50, 250 referring to 250 micrograms of fluticasone and 50 micrograms of salmeterol and they use twice as much fluticasone in the TORCH study. But there may be a role in that circumstance. In meta-analyses, which have looked at the role of inhaled steroids in COPD, the best evidence shows that if you have a patient who has frequent exacerbations of COPD, who keeps requiring antibiotic bursts, who's coming into the hospital several times a year, when those patients are placed on inhaled corticosteroids, their exacerbation rate uh, improves substantially. And is there any place at all for systemic steroids? We'll use systemic steroids such as prednisone uh, primarily when a patient's having an acute exacerbation. So they wind up in the hospital and we'll put them on solumedrol or we'll put them on prednisone 20 to 40 milligrams daily for anywhere from five days to a couple of weeks and with or without a taper depending on the duration of steroids that we're going to be giving the patient. There are a few patients who tend to have really severe COPD where systemic steroids may be useful. When you give systemic steroids, though, uh, we greatly increase the chance of injuring our patients. These patients are at higher risk for developing vertebral fractures, for developing osteoporosis, for developing thinning of their skin, easy bruising. Uh, we increase their likelihood of developing immune compromise where they can get opportunistic infections. So we really try to be very careful 
in using systemic steroids. But for some patients, a low dose seems to help. If you're going to give a low dose of steroids, like prednisone 10 milligrams, if you can give it every other day, uh, that seems to reduce some of the complications. Any place for oxygen? Yes. Actually, there are the only drug uh, that has been demonstrated to actually prolong life in COPD has been oxygen. And in order to uh, help these patients, they need to qualify for oxygen. So we will typically do pulse oximetry on patients in the office at rest, and we do pulse oximetry with activity. Another important time to measure the oxygen level is at nighttime. I want to thank our guest today, Dr. Stephen Brown. We have been discussing the treatment of COPD. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.